0: Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, and what, you know. something opposite. And we talk about it all. This series that you are listening to right now features a deep dive into the blue-covered DMGR, that is DMG Reference Series of Books from 2nd Edition. What advice can we take from these books and use in our current games? That's what we're exploring. This third day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me The Campaign Sourcebook and Catacomb Guide Part 3. This book was written in the second edition AD&D days by Janelle Jaquase and William Connors and published in 1990. DMGR1 was the first in a series of nine books focused on second edition DMing. You might recognize these as the blue faux leather soft-covered books, or you might recognize them as the actual book that tells you how to DM. And I am Sam Dillon, one of your hosts, and I am with my other host brandis howdy folks and in the last couple of episodes we got through the first couple of chapters first three chapters of this book and now we are up to chapter four and chapter four is titled uses of judgment what say you sir
1: um well i I think that uh, I was uh, raised by a judge. My, my father is a uh, senior court judge of the Superior Court of Cobb County to this day. And uh, I was not taught nearly enough about how to uh, legislate from behind the screen. That's what I know. That's a that's a joke. It's, it's,
0: yes. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I,
1: I, don't, I don't recommend judges doing any legislating. It's not the same thing. Anyway.
0: Um, you just see a judge with a DMG screen, you know. That's
1: <laughs> okay. I mean, if you're... It, it, Basically that's the next step for Matt Mercer, right? Right. He needs to add like two more players to his table and then he just needs a courtroom.
0: I could see it now. Objection, roll a d20. Yeah, right? Yeah, totally.
1: But but his table is it has like 37 players at this point, so, you know, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's a couple more.
1: All yeah, right. So the the chapter starts off with that kind of um It's talking about the purposes of of court of law to interpret the law uh, and and how it applies to a situation. And it's drawing a comparison between that and and GMing. And it's not for nothing that you'll hear a lot of uh, old school texts and players use the word judge in place of DM or GM. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, uh, that was kind of the... Word for a while, especially in other games, because you know D and D actually has Dungeon Master trademarked or whatever, and right. so you know other games called you know in Traveller you were the referee, mm-hmm. and yep, referee uh, is the other yeah
1: really common yeah. word
0: yeah so it's you know and, and, and in in other fantasy games you were the judge and so yeah it's it's a pretty typical sort of uh, way to express what the actual job of the DM is in D&D and the game runner in other games.
1: Um, th- th- this is another chapter, though, that is going to be jumping straight into the middle of arguments that you still see on Twitter and Facebook and a- any message board. You remember message boards? I remember <laughs> message boards uh, or, or Discord server or whatever that's talking about DMing and sort of. The, the ethics of good game running and that kind of thing.
0: Right.
1: Um, the the very first header following that, that intro of to interpret the law is leaving the rules behind. And I mean, there's a paragraph here that is just straight up willing to throw an elbow in those arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read it in full, which is, Leaving the rules behind does not mean that this scenario is no longer an AD&D registered game adventure. Far from it. The DM should still keep actions and uh, results within the scope of possibility offered by the rules or at least close enough to be believable. And then it goes on with a extended example as you've come to expect from us talking about (laughs) this book. Um, But what what it's getting at is just uh, hey, this resolution mechanic uh, is not going to produce a satisfying outcome for this situation. I need to do something else. Either I need to derive an outcome from fiat, or I need to roll the dice in a different way or whatever. Um, and this is just saying directly, when you change the rules, it's still d d if you want it to be.
0: Right. and. You know. Furthermore, let us discuss in the rest of the following sections of this chapter how you can actually use the rules as guidelines so that you can make judgment calls that fit for your table, which is exactly why the chapter's named Uses of Judgment – and in fact, it's it's pretty impressive how many different scenarios or situations that they cover in this chapter. And they provide, in most cases, pretty decent examples of two different ways to respond to a particular situation and the pros and cons of both of those. Now, it's it still does suffer a little bit from word count problems, right? Like you, this, this book is only, uh, what is it? 125 pages or something. So you've got 125 pages to fit some really, really meaty topics. And while some of these pages are pretty dense, you know, there's not artwork on, on several two page spreads in a row. Um, but that's, it's got a nice big font. That's easy for me to read still, even though I'm You know, coming up to fifty here, Uh, and so you know you're going to run into space issues. And even with space issues, they do a really good job of trying to present two sides or two different ways to deal with the situation and the pros and cons of each. And it's 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 admirable. It's a really good chapter.
1: I absolutely agree with that. I mean, this is a pretty hardcore must-read chapter of just if you're going to. Be running games, especially if they're D and D, but even if they're not, you're going to get something out of this. Is my feeling, um, because it really is about making decisions for the good of the table and and everyone's enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these things, you know, opinions have shifted. That's okay. Um, understanding what some of the other answers have been in the past is actually still practical information mm-hmm. for, for understanding why other decisions got made and why doing it in a particular way is important.
0: Right. And this chapter tries to be really balanced. I mean, the um, the section mm-hmm. leaving the rules behind is very uh, – right after it, it the section is danger, danger. And it says, we've been promoting the concept of slipping free from the rules for a better game, yet – Game freedom has a darker side. There's risk involved in breaking the rules. Realize that there are times during a game when dice rolling and rules adherence must be followed. And then the whole next page is about when those situations arise, how to recognize them, and when to decide not to actually adhere to the rule.
1: Right. And one of the things is, hey, don't break the rules in favor of your NPCs. They need to seem like they're operating by world rules too. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think the official position around that is softening in 5e. Uh, I think that's what we're seeing in some of the changes to spellcasting. Like mm-hmm. It doesn't have to work the same for uh, NPCs as it does for PCs. But in this specific example here, they're talking about why didn't we get a save against this this charm effect? Right. and. I don't think that the changes in NPC spellcasting are really headed toward uh, charms with no save. That's, that's right. different.
0: Well, matter. and the the issue also is one of so there's um so so part of it is do you want the NPCs and villains and monsters that are the foils for the PCs? Do you want them to play by the exact same rules? And what does that mean? Does that mean that the actual mechanics of the game apply to them exactly, specifically the same as the PCs? And I would, I would say that this book says sometimes, right? Yep. Because sometimes it's not necessary for the mechanical rule to be the same, but what is necessary is even if Something is adjudicated differently, mechanically speaking, because you know, for an NPC or for a particular situation brought on by an opponent in the game, it has to be fair. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's the same exact thing as long as it's fair. Because the issue with the whole thing about the save, the situation they bring up with the save, it's that it wasn't fair,
1: right? And it's specifically not fair because what it's uh, negating is. A trait of the player character, specifically right. their saving exactly. throw value, mm-hmm.
0: exactly, right, right.
1: Uh, th- that's an ability they may have developed, and, and I mean, at any level, it's developed to some mm-hmm. degree, right. even if their saving throw number is twenty. It's exactly, yep. It's still yep. their stat. You you don't get to ignore the PC's stat, right?
0: Yep, yep, exactly. And then you know it goes on to remind you that. Um, the PCs in your game are not just anybody. They're the heroes. Yep. And this is a concept that has existed since the very beginnings of of the role-playing game itself as as a type of game. And all through today, through 5th edition, that is one of the main tenets of what you're doing when you're playing the game. Yeah, there can be powerful NPCs. Yeah, there can be powerful monsters. But remember that the PCs are special. Right.
1: And and they're really special in the sense that they're the ones we're telling the stories about. Right. Uh, you, you can, can go as, as gritty and like, um, tracking ammo and I mean, you can track them sharpening the weapons. If it is what really floats your boat. Uh, I can't recommend it, but I, <laughs> I'm not your boss. Um,
0: Well, I mean, some styles rely on strict, you know, uh, records regarding resources and, you know, ammo and and oil for your lantern and and length of rope. All that stuff is resource. And, you know, I'm not knocking a game that deals with – I love that kind of game. In a certain context, a certain type of game with a certain set of players, it's extremely fun.
1: Right. I I definitely – agree that there is a joy to be found in the unforgiving nature of darkest dungeon, mm-hmm. because when you do win, it really feels like you've, you've done something cool because mm-hmm. you know that everything was tilted against you. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what it amounts to is just uh, no matter how you, like, gritty and bleak and deprotagonizing protagonizing your world is uh they still don't just get killed by an anvil falling out of the sky on their heads right 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 that that, that's still not the way because that that completely random unforeseeable thing is just that there was no gameplay there what was i supposed to do
0: Mm -hmm. right um Yeah, the idea of the of course at any moment in time the DM can say rocks fall everybody dies.
1: Yes, famously yes.
0: The the DM has that power, but that doesn't that doesn't make for a fun game.
1: Yep. Um, And the the next section, when reason fails, is an incredibly important argument to game design. Um, It it is an argument about. no, there's not going to be a rule for every situation. Embrace that. Learn the the core like style of the engine and figure it out. Like, mm-hmm. We put a human in charge for a reason, is how I'd put it. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, it says um, much is left to the judgment skills of the DM. If the rules don't exactly cover a situation he and his players must resolve the dispute via a mutual agreement or a definitive declaration by the DM. And, you know, dealing with ambiguities and difficulties that develop, that's why the DM is a living, breathing person and not a computer.
1: Yep. Um, And, you know, there have been some games that worked really very hard to, be as close to a good GM as they could manage, and there's just never going to be as as much freedom to come up with weird solutions as you know, a, a human interlocutor can manage. That's that, that's just the joy of having a human receive your content. Um, but um, I, I I appreciate the, the last paragraph of when reason fails, it leads into the next many, many sections. Um, because they're, they're talking about addressing problem players in a lot of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the solutions that you hear about these same problems now uh, go to kick the player out of the game first. Um, here they're saying, wherever possible, we've avoided that one we haven't listed it it is always an option but sure i think this book regards that to a substantial degree as the non-solution
0: right i think this book is is realistic or that the authors of this book are realistic in that they know that you know while this hobby is popular and i mean even this was written in 1990 or 1989 or whatever, um, published in 1990. So, you know, even now in today's, you know, booming fifth edition, it's not like you just stumble across a DD player everywhere you go and you can just have a party of, you know, people everywhere. Um, it depends on a lot of different factors. It depends on where you live. It depends on... Whether there's a freaking pandemic going on, it depends on whether you have people that can meet online. It depends on if you have a location to play in person. I mean, there's too many things that are dependent uh, that it's not necessarily okay to just have a, a knee jerk. Okay, I'm going to kick that player out of the game because if you do that, you're going to end up with no game. So
1: certainly, certainly a possible yeah. outcome. Yeah,
0: and and I think that they, I think they understood that. Because I think when this was written, you know, it was the second edition days. And while while D&D has basically been popular amongst role players since its inception, we're still a small niche. And we're still a relatively small population uh, playing a hobby game. And so, you know, not everybody has the luxury of, you know, people knocking at their door, clamoring to get into their game.
1: So... If that is your lifestyle, that's really, really satisfying.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, I do want to call out the the next section, which is basic. This is actually still under the when reason fails, because now it's going to go into the here are some issues you might run into in your game. Mm-hmm. But it starts off with some presumptions. It says um, that. During a difficult situation, right during a, during a session that's having difficulty, there are certain presumptions that have to be uh, stated and, and basically understood by everyone at the table. And here are the yep. presumptions. The first one is the DM must declare that his word is the final authority in things pertaining to the game. He'll listen to arguments, uh, but the DM is the final arbiter. And so once the ruling is made, whatever your agreement is about whether you talk about it at the table or after the game or whatever, despite any of that, that, that's sort of logistical. But the fact of the matter is that the DM is the final arbiter. The second presumption is if the DM makes the decision, so so I know a lot of people that would cringe at that whole idea of the DM being the final arbiter, his word is law or their word is law. This book um, defaults to the, the he as the whatever, but you get my it's idea. Just right? 2E yeah, yeah,
1: it's, it's just the two E style
0: guide. Yeah, yeah, it's just the two E style. So so the idea here is there are people that would say, oh wait, wow, that's really that's that's sort of less modern. But here's the thing: listen to the next presumptions, the, the next sort of rule pin you know underpinnings to why this works the next one is the players know that if the dm makes a decision that everyone agrees is bad the dm is more than willing to discuss it and possibly even you know reverse the decision Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the third presumption is the players are aware that any major rules variants that are being used are on the table at the beginning. There's not going to be any surprise house rule that comes in. And the fourth presumption is major deviations from the group's accepted rules must be approved by the group. Okay. And they take effect after the situation that is the thing that brought up the problem is resolved. So, while it starts out with, oh, the DM is the judge and the final arbiter, then it says, but remember, you're all playing a game at the same table. And everybody needs to be on board with how the game works. Otherwise, you're just going to have a problem every session going forward. So these are the ground rules of how, the, how it should. This is the social contract and how that social contract intersects with the rules of the game, the mechanics of the game. The first one is once the DMs made a ruling, that's the rule. The second one is, however, if it turns out to be a bad ruling, the DM is flexible enough to reverse it. And everybody knows it. The third one is everybody also knows that there's going to be no surprise house rules in the middle of the game. And the fourth one is, Anything that is uh, something that becomes a house rule because of an in-game situation or in-session situation will then be an approved house rule going forward.
1: Right. So so the DM is only infallible ex cathedra to get us through this situation. Right. We can come back and talk about it, and it's okay. That's not not lasting infallibility, just, oh God, we are not stopping this session to have a two-hour argument. Please and thank you.
0: Right. And basically there has to be someone who's responsible for making a final decision. Yep. And because of the way the game works, it makes sense that the DM is that person, but that doesn't mean that the players don't get a say in how they have fun at the table.
1: Yep. Agreed. I I think that that's, that's a section that's especially easy to read too fast and misunderstand mm-hmm. and have it look much more retrograde than it is. Um, it's actually pretty, pretty pretty cogent and workable even to the most modern of games. If you just understand it as no, the point here is to let things keep going and not call the, you know bring the session to a stop. Right. We'll talk about it afterward, and if I need to reverse myself, I will. It's fine.
0: And let's not forget, you know, the situation when this book was written. So this is published in 1990. Second edition was just released in 1989. So this is really the sort of first DM's guidebook after the DMG,
1: right? And it's it's and
0: only a year after the release right. of second edition.
1: And so it's necessarily much more a reaction to first ed jamming than second ed jamming.
0: Right. Well, and that's where I was kind of going with this. Yeah. So remember, in first edition, for a really long time, maybe not in the in, in end years of first edition, uh, because by then enough people were dming that it that people had read all of the core rule books. But in the beginning, remember, players only had access to the barest of information. So that they could play their characters. They weren't supposed to read the DMG. They weren't supposed to read the monster manual. They weren't supposed to read the spell descriptions, for example, if they weren't playing a wizard. They they were just only supposed to read the most bare minimum information about their race and class so that they could play their character and they were supposed to take notes during the game so that they would know about what was happening in the game so that they could play their character. And that was it. They they rolled a the die. They didn't know what they needed to hit something. They didn't uh-huh. they didn't necessarily have access to the attack matrices in the DMG. The DM had that. Right. And yep. so when, when you have a situation, you're going from a game that's run like that, and I know that there's a lot of fluidity there, right? I, I know that a lot of people will say, well, we never played like that. All of us read the DMG, whatever. But I'm telling you, though, there was an intention with how the game was set up when Gygax wrote those three books. And that was one of the intentions was be, keeping the players in mystery is better for the game. Right. Because then the DM can make a ruling and nobody, no player is going to come back and say, well, that's not what it says in the DMG. And now here we are fast forward to 1990 and here's this book. And while it does start out here in this section saying, well, you know, the DMs word is law. That's the final ruling. Then it says, however, you know, the players are playing this game too and they get a right to make a case for why something makes sense or why a ruling seems unfair. And that is changeable in the game for that group. And that right there is an amazing innovation. Yep.
1: Yep. I I definitely agree with that. Um I mean, ultimately this does a really good job to me of matching the much like kinder tone of Tui. Yeah. Uh, like um zeb cook was not interested in my way or the highway um language the way Gygax not infrequently was um and this i think is communicating the same sense and so this is what i grew up with this is this is my set of assumptions about GMing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. uh not to say i always lived up to these ideals but I recognize them as the ideals.
0: Right. So it moves on with several uh, issues that you may experience in your game. And I, I love this. Uh, I love this first. Um, this first <laughs> example. Right. I'm going to read it. Uh, it's escaping from the Monty Hall. And here's the example that it provides. It says, after Daniela slays all 12 of the Kobolds with her multi-barreled wand of Megadeth, the rest of the party finds about 100,000 gold pieces, 33 potions, 243 gems, 900 pieces of jewelry, and a sword that glows almost as brightly as Daring Dirk's Frostbrand, a suit of well-maintained power armor with markings of the old Imperium and two mounted projectile throwers on it, about four cases full of short-range rockets, a rod of lordly might, and a shadow box hanging on the wall that contains about 20 different figurines of wondrous power. Oh boy! We grab all the magical loot and stick it into our portable holes. The wizards begin sett- the wizards began setting up the transmat box that teleports all the gold back to Castle Pardo. Well, as you do that, the south wall glows and a humongous bat-winged creature steps through, oozing pink goo from huge warts and dragging a huge bag of treasure with it. Like that is so hilarious! The wand of Mega Death. I love it. I yep. love it. Um, and I can't so believe they I- didn't get
1: sued for calling it that but do you do? right
0: well they use that term megadeth uh, several times in this chapter i i laughed every time um <laughs> anyway uh so uh, you know you all understand the problem the monty hall idea uh, regarding the the game show uh and just having too much treasure and it it tries to sort of it gives you that um, amazingly exaggerated um, example, and then it tries to tell you, okay, here's what you can do. If you've fallen into that, either accidentally or on purpose, and you've realized that it's starting to damage your game or damage the way that you want your game to be, then here's some suggestions on how to get out of it. Uh, it's decent. Um, it's uh, it's it's very much, um, you know, uh, it's trying to be a measured, response right it doesn't just say well you know just uh, do something to take the magic items away all done boom let's go to the next section it actually discusses the pros and cons of that and what you could do instead and possibly how to wean them off of the monty hall ideal um but yeah no it's it's decent i just right think the and, examples just various
1: um, <laughs> do you think there's a lot to be said for just um Okay, the characters are too powerful. We'll throw throw overpowered stuff at them, mm-hmm. and make them just need that cool gear. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, but but I've I've been in uh, a, a campaign that was consciously Monty Hall as its premise.
0: I, I tell you about this before. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the,
1: the one where we got a half million gold pieces at sixth level,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then we spent several sessions <laughs> just figuring out how to beat people that had half a million gold pieces. And what <laughs> right. to do about that?
0: <laughs> it creates a problem.
1: It was an interesting set of problems. Yeah, actually, yeah, it was really fun.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, that that the GM that was running that was just the right kind of GM to take, you know, a, a, a weird situation with. It could have been any rule system in the world, and it would have been fun because right. that's how the GM is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And distinctly, though, just for the audience's sake, this is not about that. This is not saying if you want to plan that type of campaign, here's what you do. This is about
1: this is assuming a standard campaign for sure.
0: Right. And and assuming that you accidentally put the players in this position by giving them too much or you're running some sort of published thing and it had too much and you didn't realize, you know, or whatever. And now you want to pull it back like this. This is what that. What that's addressing, but yeah, I could see where if that was an on-purpose thing, it would be extremely fun.
1: Now, I I will put oh, cash money on the idea that the the paragraph about although it's a silly solution, have all the magical items possessed by the party suddenly fly together and form an <laughs> ultra monster, a gold-like creature that it must be defeated. If you see a thread about, gosh, my, my party has too much cool stuff mm-hmm. in Facebook. <laughs> I one hundred percent guarantee I would put cash money on it that this answer will come up mm-hmm. within the first ten posts. Yeah, in, sure. in response.
0: Yep. Right. Yep.
1: Because there's nothing new under the sun.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, right. And William and Janelle knew it. And here you go.
0: Well, like, and what's that, that
1: idea has not left. It's just still the right. first thing that comes to some people's minds. <laughs> there you go.
0: Well, and and the funny thing about that is that. This, is, this book is um, unbelievably, you know, prescient, uh, maybe not. I mean, it's 1990. So the game had already yeah. been around for 15 years. But So it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievably good at bringing up everything that always gets brought up since before mm-hmm. this book and after, right? All of yep. the issues, I have seen almost every single issue that is brought up in this book. I've seen it posted on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, on, on different, you know, forums, Ian world, you know, uh, RPG geek. And like all these, uh, all of these issues are brought up ad nauseum because they are actual issues because people are playing this game with you and people are relatively predictable in the way that they respond to certain things. (laughs) And so of course these same issues keep coming up.
1: (laughs) That that I think is fair. Um, So next up is super characters. I mean, it's the same idea, except the power is already inherent to the character,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? Um, But in a lot of ways, I think this is one of the most important ones to read now, because there's so much discourse going on around how to challenge and engage players properly in tier three and tier four of fifth ed.
0: Well, let me read the example to the audience Please do. and audience, close your eyes and imagine you're hearing this and you're trying to figure out what edition this is about. Uh, <clears throat> both ancient dragons rear back and spew fire at Clarissa, the mighty that's 192 points of fiery mega death see there's that megadeth again uh well with her cloak of displacement and ring of fire resistance clarissa automatically makes her saving roll between the ring of fire resistance the potion of fire resistance and her special ability to make her body immune to heat that reduces the damage down from 192 to 18 only a slightly sin only slight sin a slight singeing clarissa slurps down a potion of extra healing and then blasts both dragons into flinders with the photon cannon wand that she found in the metallic ruins uh I just want to say,
1: I just want to say evasion would reduce that damage by more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I know. Right.
1: (laughs) By (laughs) 18 more points. (laughs) Yeah,
0: there you go. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) But you you get my idea, right? Like that, that, that could be, you know, third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition, that it could be any of those. Yep. Or apparently second edition, right? I mean, this is, in other words, this is a really common problem. And even in fifth edition, which is, a you know, more modern take on the rules and, has you know a sort of uh, it has twenty year twenty more years of you know thirty more years of design and development behind it, and it still has the same problem.
1: Yep, um, but you know the, the some of the answer now is this is less of a problem than you think because right. evasion is coded into the game. There are a lot of other saves to target. Like, okay, you avoided the fireball. Well, fine. I've got other tricks up my sleeve.
0: Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, really, the issue would be: Why did you yeah. put a foot on Canada wand in your game, and
0: <laughs> why does it
1: do enough damage to kill two dragons <laughs> in one round? That's a problem, right there, Fred.
0: Well, uh, and that's sort of what this addresses, though, right? It it it, it addresses. This is addressing the character being too powerful, but that photon cannon is actually addressed in the Monty hall section. Right. How do you make that, that photon cannon be not as problematic?
1: Yep. Um, Well, and uh, I also, you know, you've been laughing about mega death and I just wonder a little bit if this is them joking about mega damage in, um, in rifts Mm -hmm. as a rules term. But yeah. Yeah. who yeah. knows? <laughs>
0: who knows? Don't know. Um, I cannot comment on such. <laughs> uh,
1: but I do have to throw in that reference for a friend of mine who will listen to this and will and laugh. skeet <laughs> blood from the eyes oh. at the mention of Mega Damage. <laughs> Hi, Greg. What's up, buddy? <laughs> um, well, you know. Um, so So changing reality is... We just call it a retcon now,
0: yeah, kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Um, you know how to handle uh, rules changes and retcons that are made to make something like work around a, a player's uh, lines or veils, or or what have you. Um, after the fact, you know, if they if they realized after the fact they had a bad problem with something, well. You need to change that. This is talking about that, too, a little more indirectly because those terms for safety tools aren't a thing
0: Mm -hmm. in this time. Right. Yeah, this is directly addressing when basically there's something, some rule in the game that the player is, or like at some point, the rule is being exploited. Whether it's on purpose or accidentally, or if it's due to a miscommunication about how something works, the DM eventually realizes, "Oh, that shouldn't work that way. It's 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 ex- being exploited, uh, and I need to rein that back because it's going to mess up my plans in the future." How do you then, you know, tell the the players, "Hey, by the way, here's the new way we're going to deal with that particular spell or object or?" power or ability or feet or whatever it is in the game right in this in this example it's about using invisibility um but that also goes for how do you address something as you said with safety tools that keeps everyone at the table safe without actually disrupting things to the point where it feels weird right
1: yep um the next step is rules lawyering rules lawyers have never changed yeah, yeah. Being able to change is literally a category one uh, <laughs> problem of rules lawyers. You know that—that's the idea.
0: they—they well, give—they um, give, they give the rules lawyer name this time, Rulius <laughs> Magisterius.
1: Yeah, that's a. Uh, I mean, that, that's a taxonomic name. Oh yeah, sure.
0: I'm I'm going to um I'm going to now have that character in my game. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Genus um, and
1: species. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, rules lawyering. Yeah, okay. I mean, it, it, it's a good section still, but it's just, you know, like you said, that never changes. There's always, uh, yep. you know, someone.
1: Um, and o- honestly, like Reddit has only sharpened the edge of that, you know, game forums and, and things like that, where someone comes up with, you know, a, a corner case or a, a debatable reading of something
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then builds up the argument to support this exploitative reading. Well, that's, that, that's rules lawyering ready to happen right there. Right. I mean, yeah. that, that is lawyering folks. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. <laughs> anyway, not important. Um mm-hmm. We get into uh, player personalities. These scare quotes are very special. Um, <laughs> I sort of love the example here because of uh, how it showcases the very specifically late 80s to 1990 like stereotypes of fandom, right? Uh, with the reference to uh, uh, mercenary magazines, and like the player who wants to show you how close he he can get his round roundhouse kick to your nose. Like <laughs> if you haven't played with these people, you can have my memories of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just take them, please. <laughs> um, yeah, because th- these were all real people. Uh, maybe not by these names, but the stereotypes. Like, yeah, I knew these people. Um, that. That very much fits for me, and I started in '93. Um, I think some of the like death grip that uh, mercenary magazines had on, you know, the gamer imagination got marginalized more to the benefit of the hobby, but it was still a thing, right? Um, and and maybe it's still really going strong in. Maybe it's going strong in gaming communities that I'm not in now. So whatever, what do I know?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, there were also other magazines. Uh, oh, for sure. You know, in in my experience, and and the whole idea of you know, it's the you know, pe you know, it, this this is actually a good example because it does sp- pinpoint for specific different types of people, right? And there was always the person who wanted to physically show you how. A move is possible. And there's always the person who's distracted looking at something until their turn comes up in combat. And there's always the person who's, you know, busy, distracted, but doing something for the game, like painting a mini, but they're distracted during the game. And then there's, you know, yeah, there's always these people. These are very much, uh, the distractions might be different nowadays and the, the activities might be slightly different, but basically it's the same.
1: Yeah, it's weird how they don't call out uh people playing on their smartphones.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of of sections in here uh where um maybe not necessarily in the uses of judgment chapter but in the uh the next chapter where I thought to myself, "Ooh, that's that's it feels very dated because yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mention um, anything online. So
1: the, the one thing that I really feel I need to say about uh distracted players is just our understanding of focus and uh, you know, ADHD has developed in the last thirty-one, yeah, thirty-one years. Mm-hmm. Develop with it, you know. Yeah. M- make sure you're you understand your players and uh, have some compassion for you know neurodivergence. If you don't, don't in fact, yourself possess it, or if you yeah. do still be compassionate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, no one's doing this on purpose is a good uh, general assumption.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I, there's some amount of, when I think back to these, these types of behaviors at the table, I think of my teenage years. Right. Mm-hmm. And like the whole thing with the roundhouse kick, you know, that was completely something that my brother and I would you know, we want to physically make sure that this, you know, that we want to show you this thing. Right. And yeah. like, that was dumb kid stuff in a way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then I think to my twenties and I think, wow, there were still people at the tables doing that, <laughs> you know, so it it was still dumb kid stuff, but we were, we were not dumb kids anymore necessarily, at least not as, as much. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, You know, the hobby itself attracts a certain type of person, Mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in a derogatory – like, I'm not one of those, oh, everybody's in the basement, you know, mouth breathers, whatever, whatever. I don't mean that in a derogatory manner. I just mean that there's a certain type of creative person. There's a certain type of creativity that this hobby sparks that attracts certain types of people, and it turns out that those people often are very intelligent. And very intelligent people often are easily distracted.
1: That's true. Um, I also think it's important to keep in mind here that um, we're doing everything we can to both recognize more kinds of intelligence and make more people feel welcome at the table than just sort of a single kind of intelligent people.
0: Oh, absolutely. And that, but that's why I use the term intelligence because that right. is a broad word,
1: exactly. Right? For, exactly. In, for me, not, the
0: way I'm using it, the way I'm meaning it. So, you're I'm, right I'm not there. trying
1: to correct you, Sam. I'm trying to make sure that uh, all of our listeners mm-hmm. uh, understand what we both mean, yeah, yeah. right? Because uh, I, I, I know you, buddy. We're good. <laughs>
0: okay. I, well, I mean, I don't, and I don't want the audience to think that I'm si- that I'm meaning something that I'm not actually meaning exactly. when I use the term intelligence, that is, has a huge broad umbrella meaning. There are lots of different ways to be extremely intelligent. And it just so happens that creative people are drawn to games like D&D, but I'm not narrowing down that creativity into a particular silo of creativeness. I'm saying that it's because D&D and other role-playing games bring out that creative part, but that creative part comes in many, many different forms, And so we are not a monolith, right? We don't, we're not all exactly the same, but we all, you know, the majority of people in my life ever, and I've been playing since 1982, the most of the people that I have played role-playing games with, no matter what the game was, no matter what our ages were, are extremely intelligent people, And that doesn't mean everybody went out and got straight A's. It means that we have a certain amount of intelligence and creativity, and that's what attracts everybody to the game. But that intelligence is a broad intelligence, not a narrow one.
1: Conversely, we're also all all kind of the same dumb.
0: Well, that's humanity. (laughs) Humanity is all the same dumb. It's true. (laughs) Um. Anyway, uh, so we can move on from there. So uh, it actually talks about different types of behaviors that can arise at a table. For example, uh, uh, player pettiness and um, someone just having an off night and, uh, you know, players I- at the game instigating things and backstabbing each other. Um and it addresses all of those. And uh, it's a decent section. Um, one thing that it tries to keep coming back to is, you know, if the players are doing this, it's one thing and you can, it tries to give some hints and tips on how to, you know, sort of resolve any of these conflicts. But but it, it often also makes the point of, but it's not okay if the DM is doing this, right? Like the players doing it is one thing, but as the DM it's part of your job to try to resolve those situations so that no one is at the table you know getting bullied basically yep
1: absolutely um, which the the art on page 40 here uh, kind of <laughs> highlights in a way mm-hmm. um, as the the looks that the three listening players are giving to the rules lawyer who is <laughs> expounding upon something or other. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they definitely say to me that maybe that guy is uh, getting his head shoved in a toilet in 20 minutes.
0: <laughs> you think 20 minutes, huh? That's, that's your, yeah, that's a little longer than I was giving him.
1: <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> He's to lower that arm and uh, maybe put his butt in the seat. Just, just a thought friend. Yeah. But yep. uh, he still doesn't deserve to be bullied. He's just – That's true. This is a table of four. That's what I'm yeah. seeing in this picture.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and, the, and the picture actually is set up to sort of depict you know, all, one certain stereotype that is bad at the table.
1: Yeah, but uh, uh, as you said, this is a bunch of different um, specific use cases. Um, like, me against them mentality absolutely deserves its its place here. Um, it's one of those things that's going to get lumped in under BFN of the players mm-hmm. in um, more recent years. Right. But it's it's absolutely important advice. Like, you don't be a GM who is antagonistic in your mindset. You're, you're playing antagonists. You're not yourself the antagonist.
0: Right. Yep. Uh, And then it goes on to uh, experts versus know-it-alls. An expert is a player who has a particular knowledge of a certain aspect of something. And anytime the DM describes something in the game or in the setting that doesn't match with the reality of this person's area of expertise, they suddenly become, um, rules lawyery and want to suggest how to fix it (laughs) and a know-it-all is that same thing but uh with every topic (laughs) so yeah
1: um like the the advice they land on with the expert specifically about um the the dm working with a player to help their expertise inform the game in in a fun way i mean That's now boilerplate in Ken and Robin talk about stuff Mm -hmm. whenever they get a question about this, which is about once a month.
0: Right. Yeah. Because it's common. Because, you know, the thing is that the DM is just a person, just like the players are just people. And so the DM can't possibly know everything about everything. And there's often going to be somebody at the table that knows more about martial arts or the weather or hydrogeology or, or biology, biology. yeah, yeah and so you get you get those things and you know uh, sometimes people can't help themselves when they just have to call out something that seems ridiculous or seems you know far fetched or you right. know what i mean well, if
1: you've invested a lot of time in learning something and then it's represented in a game you'd like to see it represented right
0: mhm right
1: that's that is actually understandable mhm uh, just you know both sides need to be gentle about that, and right. that can be hard yeah. because in general, the rest of the table would like to move on. but this is sort of why Hollywood gets it wrong is a thing
0: mm-hmm. and they uh they 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 have a uh not in so many words definite advice of don't be a dick, yeah, in here. You know, when they talk about telling the player something like basically shut up, I'm not doing it your way. They don't say to say that they say gently inform the player.
1: First of all, reinforce the authority of the DM.
0: Right. But. But, you know, in gently inform the player that their character would not know that. Yep. Right. So. You can actually turn it into an in-game lack of knowledge versus what the, you know, what, you know, and sometimes that works. Yeah. Sometimes that works. Uh, often it doesn't. It depends on what the situation is. But the key here is, you know, if the player actually brings up something that's useful, hey, you know, that's when you say, okay, let's talk after the session. And yep. then after the session, you sit down and you say, okay, how can I make this more realistic for you? Because I understand I'm breaking your ability to suspend disbelief. And I don't want to do that because I want us to both have fun. And that works. Yep.
1: Hmm. Um, oh, boy. And the next one is uh, <laughs> cheating on both sides of the screen. <sighs>
0: yeah.
1: uh, well, you can still find a, a very current fight about this at least once a month on Twitter. Yep. Uh, Ask asks about fudging and how people feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is a fast track to getting right uh, 50 replies. Ask me how I know. Well,
0: and, I, and, I, and remember in, in the, the pacing and theatrics chapter here in, the, in our last episode, I complained about how strong they went for fudge the dice. And they do a little backtracking here in this section,
1: uh, right? And some amount of dice fudging is uh, officially permitted within Five E for GMs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it, it's just written into the rules. Here are situations where it's okay. You know, you know your situation. Yeah. Like what it kind of comes down to is uh, once you understand why a rule is a good idea. You can also know why it's a good rule to break it. Why it's a good time to break that rule. Right. That's just a thing.
0: Well, and the way they describe it in here is that DM cheating or fudging should always be the last resort. Often it serves as a way to get the party around a flaw in the design of an adventure, something too deadly, or an overemphasis placed on the outcome of a single die roll. And that is a very important and salient point. And it still happens today that adventures are written that put way too much pressure and importance on one die roll. Right. So that's true. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, this, this is one of those. You're absolutely right. If you go on Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or Ian world, go on to those places and, and ask a, start a thread, ask a question. Hey, what do you had What about, you know, what is there ever a good time for a DM to fudge the dice? And you will immediately have a five page thread yep. about all, all of the ways that it's important and not important and you should do it and shouldn't do it. And it, it, it will get no end of conversation.
1: You'll probably also get pointers to the last five threads on it. So that's absolutely
0: good and, and then they'll answer anyway. They'll say, Well, we already talked about this here, here, and here, but let me give my response. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because everyone
1: has a strong opinion and love right. sharing it. That's what I know.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Welcome to the
1: internet, y'all. <laughs> um,
0: um, for the players cheating, it it's taking a different tack because that's a different, you know. The assumption is if the DM is fudging. Uh, because of the way that they put the premise in the earlier chapters in this book, if the DM is fudging, it's in favor of the players. And it's because there was a flaw that was unintended or, you know, whatever. Um, or, you know, you don't want to have a random encounter. That's going to do a TPK be- because a random encounter is not something that's, you know, uh, sh- it, it feels cheap, right? It feels cheap. So, there's, They already set those premises, right? But for the players cheating, that's a different thing. There is no premise that says the players, uh, it's okay if they fudge their stat rolls or their saving throws or whatever at any point in time. And so it's a different situation.
1: Yep. Um, i very happy to say it's not something I've had to deal with uh, to my knowledge in all these years
0: yeah i don't have
1: players who wanted to be weird about that
0: yeah i had a player one time who would roll and say his number and swipe his die off the table really fast Mm -hmm. And when he, he would only do that at certain times and it was when his role was really high and it was when it was absolutely necessary <laughs> in his mind that mm-hmm. he did that. And so I, so I talked to him afterwards and, you know, uh, I told him you can't do that. I didn't say you're cheating, blah, blah, blah. I said, uh, you know, everybody rolls out in the open, including me. You need to leave your role on the table, Yep. you know, and that was it. It wasn't uh any big deal. Um, but although I, you know, he was cheating, but I, I did have a situation in fifth edition that was in fourth edition, by the way, that last example, but in fifth edition, I had an example where one of my teen players wanted to cheat and mm. he did it because he wanted, he wants to win, you know, cause he wants sure. to win the game. Uh, and so he'll, he would, he'll roll and say, oh, I'm rolling or whatever. If it rolled high, he would tell me, oh, I was rolling because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to roll perception for blah, blah, blah. And if he rolled and it wasn't any good thing, he would just, you know, then he would say, can I roll a perception to find out whatever? And then he would get to roll again, right? Yeah. um And so I had to institute a rule where they're not allowed to roll their dice unless I ask for a roll. Yep. <laughs> Which, uh which they they proclaimed uh to not like that rule at first because of course they like (laughs) rolling dice right they just want to they want to be able to fidget with their dice but i said well okay we can go back to you fidgeting with your dice if you quit cheating and then it was protesting well we weren't cheating we weren't cheating and i'm like okay we'll prove it right and then so that same player did that again and one of the other players was like, oh, I see now you did do that. You know, <laughs> so then they, then they went ahead and agreed to the, you know, cause they weren't really, I don't think the player was doing it on purpose. I think it was just, oh, I'm, I'm doing this. Let me, you know, like it was more of a, I'm just trying to do the best for the game. Sure. Right. He just wanted to win.
1: So anyway. And, and you know, that's what we, uh, teach players to want so right sure right. i understand why that yeah. would happen
0: yeah, yeah and i'm and that's why i say you know that it wasn't like this malicious like oh i'm just going to keep rolling until i get a high enough number that i know hits or anything like that it was more of a, let me see if i can game the system and you know you know just roll my dice roll my dice and then when i come up with a good number then i'm gonna say it's the actual role you know yeah, yeah. not in a malicious way
1: yep all right um The the use cases get sort of still more specific and quickly resolved uh, for just a wide variety of table situations, uh, toxic behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, uh, unavoidable life stuff. You know, Uh, some of these we we did specifically talk about in uh, our our episodes in the 5EDMG. Um, yeah. What do you do when a player is missing?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and that that's what I was going to say is this section, it gives some some really interesting choices here, but it's not actually labeled what do you do when a player is missing? It's this sort of whole section under the label when nature calls.
1: Yep.
0: <laughs> you know, what do you do when somebody gets up from the table and has to leave the table either temporarily or for the rest of the session? And uh, it's actually a really nice section That is kind of buried amongst uh, things that maybe shouldn't be in the same section. I mean, I get why it's here, but this was one of the points in this book where I thought, huh, that needs a bigger call out for that section, because this is one of those topics that constantly comes up every at least once a week. I see people asking oh, I've got a player who can't be there and it's the big finale. What do I do? Oh, I've got a player who has to, ch- their work schedule changed and they have to leave an hour early from the session every time now, but I can't start any earlier. What do I do? Oh, I've got, you know, like this mm-hmm. is constant questions, constant questions about this.
1: Yep. yep. I mean, uh, everything has changed in our world, but also very little has changed. <laughs> Yes, there are just these true things about why it's difficult to have adults get together mm-hmm. on any night of the week for you know two to six hours.
0: Right. Yeah. Yep.
1: Um, yeah, I I feel like I might not have a lot more to say about several of these, um, like uh, r- shut up your dad is um I, I really like how that is uh rejected and questioned in 13th age mm-hmm. where uh the, the player of a dead character still gets a small way to contribute in combat by uh, buffing other players um i think that's cool but i'm i'm not sort of fussed about dnd not going down that road
0: yeah i don't Uh, you know for me i i sort of have a more old school mentality in a way mm -hmm, about this mm -hmm. and that is there is no metagame right the whole thing is game the whole thing is the game so if a pc dies and wants to talk to the other players while they're taking their turns during the rest of the combat what do i care about that right like i i for me the, the the reason i say that's a little more old school it's, i don't mean that to denigrate the more modern whatever anything but in the old school you know one of the things that you were meant to do was use a lot of teamwork and discussion amongst the players themselves to figure out a way to solve this challenge and it's, I'm not. I don't mean that that the players don't do that now. They do, but in a, diff, it's, a it's a different setup, right, for the game. So, you know, in, in the way olden days you used to have a caller. So, and and I know that a lot of groups dropped that. Right off the bat, but uh, you know, I actually played with a caller in my early days, and so the party can talk amongst themselves and say whatever they want and make a whole decision and all of that, and the DM's just there listening, right? And then the caller is the one who tells the DM what exactly is happening, and so there's no metagame because it all was metagame. We all were talking about what the party should do and what the thief should be doing and what the fighter should be doing and what the wizard's going to be doing, or in that case, magic user, right? Like. All of that was just part of the game. So there was no metagame. So I don't typically get fussed about players talking to players during the, during the game about anything, even if they're not actually in the room, right? Like sometimes if there's a scene where some other play, you know, some of the piece, you know, two PCs go off to talk to somebody, some important NPC and the other two are in the other room, like Only if it's disruptive to the game do I tell those people to not talk. Right.
1: Right. Like I I would be upset if it uh, created breaches of narrative logic. And otherwise, it's probably fine. Right. Um, And and I suppose there are situations where you can get into excessive quarterbacking.
0: well, if if it's impinging on another player deciding what they want to do, then it that's problematic. That's problematic right. for a different way. But I just mean in terms of if they still want to help each other plan and figure out, okay, maybe we should, you know, try to use this as a, you know, as a as a persuasion technique or as an argument of persuasion. You know, I'm assuming, you know, because here's the thing, right? A, right. Lot, a lot of times what happens is the party is traveling together and we don't actually always role play the discussions that they have and the, yeah. and the techniques they talk about and the practice that they do when they're traveling together and camping and all that. So I just figure that's what they're doing and we mm-hmm. just don't role play that. So when we get to the situation where they all want to talk about what's the best way to deal with something that's when it's happening at the table, but it probably happened.
1: Right. Well, and and for me, th- when I talk about, like, that creates a breach of narrative logic for me, if you as a player can then come in and backfill that narrative logic so that, no, actually this is supportable, mm-hmm. but in, you know, a micro flashback, we're golden.
0: Great. Go,
1: go do yeah. your thing. We're good. I, I don't care anymore. But like... Uh, the example here talks about, you know, open the left side of the ch- chest first um, as advice from a character who's dead. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're reminding the player of something that their character knows and the player has temporarily forgotten, but it's because it was last week. But for the character, it was 15 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Great. Go nuts. Right. I don't care. That That's... like being the institutional memory of a game is a player role and it's cool when someone does it really well. Right. And even the DM can need that as an active support for their game. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, uh, if they, if one player knows it, but hasn't been in contact with the other player for reasons of death or the party split or whatever, well, that's not great. Then right. you're communicating information that you know the, the acting character has no reason to know. Right. And that doesn't feel right to me because that, that's a narrative breach.
0: Sure. And I agree with that. I have no problem saying to the player, your character wouldn't know that because that person is hasn't been with you since they learned that. Exactly. Right? And and that that's fine. I have no problem. I have no problem with that. I just mean in terms of overall talk at the table like you're right if it's something that the there is a separation between if it's something that the character could possibly know and it's just that the player's not remembering absolutely right see that's not metagaming that's just providing the memory for that PC right like that's there's nothing wrong with that anyway we can move on from that I think we we understand what we're saying Um, the idea of never say impossible (laughs) always let them roll. Um, But then it says, Uh, it says, let the player know that it's impossible. Don't say it's impossible, but let them know it's impossible from the dice roll. You're asking them to make, for example, go ahead, Frank.
1: Oh, be careful with that friend.
0: Thuner needs an unmodified roll of 21 on a D 20 to swim with his armor on.
1: Right. I
0: don't, why not just Mm -hmm. tell him it's impossible then?
1: Right. Well, and, and you know, the, this thing is just out of scope for the tools that are available to you. No, you cannot punch down the, this castle wall. Right. Like that's not that's not how this works.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Not every tool is efficient to every situation.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is one so, of the so only things areas... being impossible.
1: Is is real to me.
0: Yeah, and this is one of the only areas that I really wholeheartedly disagree with what they're saying here. Because if you if you really because look, here's here's the other way to do that, right? To say, well, right now in the current situation, with the skills you have, the tools you have and the equipment you have with you, you cannot possibly do that thing. It is yep. impossible for you. But that I just gave it a condition, right? I said, with the tools you have, with the equipment you have, with the skills you have, with the knowledge you have, whatever it is, right? With the amount of time you have, whatever whatever the thing is that's making it impossible, I'm telling them what it is that's making it impossible. And they can choose to pick a different thing to do to get around that challenge, or they can go change the situation so that it's no longer impossible. That's a yeah. choice. Saying something is impossible doesn't actually remove the choice unless all you do is say, nope, it's impossible. And then you're yep. not giving them anything,
1: right? Yep. Like if you're using nope, it's impossible, and it's stonewalling them. You know, not right. not great. And I'm I'm advisedly using stonewalling since so are just described a stone wall.
0: Right. <laughs> um.
1: Oh man, overdone independent action. I said I didn't have a lot more to say about these. Yeah. As I lied, <laughs> I lied. Uh, this one has uh, has bit me hard as a player before, mm-hmm. with uh, The the, the party rogue just wanting to go solve the whole next several encounters by himself and being upset that maybe the rest of the players in the group were not as excited about him doing that for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. uh, This was actually uh, something that was a little bit encouraged, maybe a lot encouraged in the earlier editions. Um, because one of the things is that for a, for a thief, the more you steal, the more experience you get.
1: No, I know. I, I remember the, uh, class specific XP table.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just pointing out that, that this is being addressed in this book because this is something that the mechanics specifically support. Sure. And when you have a game that the mechanics specifically support this, the players that are playing that class are going to try to do it. Sure. And remember Um, also with first edition, what it said in the DMG, it said if the player isn't playing the PC to the best of its ability, in other words, if the thief is being played and they're not trying to pick every pocket and steal everything that they see that's valuable, they're not playing the PC the way it's supposed to be played. You can dock them experience for it. So yeah. when you have rule cool. sets, and I, that was 1E, e, right? And this is 2E, and so it's th- slightly different. But when you have a rule set and a and a heritage of the game that comes from expecting the thief to always be picking pockets, stealing every gem and every valuable, and going off, high, you know, slinking away hidden and silent to try to go around a challenge or to to find something valuable so that they can get the XP for it. And and all of that, that's a fully supported action on the part of the mechanics of the game,
1: yeah. And the, the case I'm thinking of is a little bit more just uh, like glory hounding by someone who wanted to play a super ninja,
0: right? Well, and and so, but where I was going was, even though it's fully supported, you know. 2E is sort of right in the evolution of, okay, this is a teamwork game. And it's a teamwork game more than a selfish game. Whereas, you know, the earlier editions, uh, they, they're they more of a selfish game, but with some teamwork and second edition is kind of almost 50-50 and third, fourth, fifth, it's more of, okay, there's teamwork. Everybody needs to work together so that we can accomplish our goals and while there's a tiny bit of selfishness and everybody can have individual goals the mechanics are fully supporting integrated teamwork but in first and second edition you didn't fully support integrated teamwork yet not in the mechanics and so because the other because the style of the thief going away and belligerently or or you know you know trying to to out out XP everyone or outwit everyone or, you know, glory hounding, as you say, that's still supported. It doesn't make it right. Yeah. And so that's what this section is addressing. It's addressing the idea of while that's supported, you know, there's a way to mediate that or ameliorate the effects of that as the DM. You don't want to totally shut down every single time a player wants to do that if they think that's what their character is supposed to be doing. But you can dampen those effects because that can turn out really bad for the whole party. And that's not fun for the rest of the party.
1: Yep. For sure. It it doesn't mean never divide the party. Right. It means keep that spotlight moving.
0: Right. Exactly, exactly, uh, and then there's the no, no, wait, I changed my mind.
1: <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, just uh, be careful about joking uh, if you deliver it in in character voice. People are going to think that's what you mean, and make sure you know how your table is going to take that. Like it isn't that you can't joke around and even say things your character wouldn't actually do as a joke. Just if the DM is looking to you to see what you really do, just answer that.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Don't th- that's the wrong time for your joke.
0: Right.
1: Like that joke. Isn't funny. It's just a lay of game at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, gaming too often. Well, you know, you don't know me. Is that a thing? <laughs> Shut up, book. You don't know me. Um, uh, insufficient players. Um, this is actually where I really, really love um, how how 5e works and how the you know, a game with an episodic style that returns to a, um, a central hub with a large roster of characters. Uh, more than one character per player. I love how that all comes together. So that you can just if not everyone's there, you just have them play alts and have a different adventure. It's yep. okay. Yeah, it can be super fun. Um, the two big party. Um, I And I wish that sometimes that c- mm-hmm. the complexity of the rules would seamlessly scale down so that it was reasonable to just every once in a while, have one GM and like 15 players (laughs) because it'd be a raid style encounter uh, as if out of an MMO where Nope, we are fighting a dragon. We got to do this. Like the, the adventures league epics nominally do this, but they do it in a kind of uh, multiple GM way with Mm -hmm. steady communication about how it's going. Um, It would be, for for my large number of players who don't all play at the same time, it'd be really, really fun just once or twice to have as many of them as we could possibly get together, like, it, all, all 15 or 20 of them, and throw them all at just a really awful combat problem and see what <laughs> happened. Yeah. But, man, d d is not the game for that, and to my knowledge, the game for that has not been written.
0: Well, I mean, I, I will counter that with, uh, you know, some of the, some of the first edition games used to have 10 or 12 people regularly at the table.
1: I, so, so I've read enough first edition to feel pretty confident that even if we were playing first edition with the players that I have right now, uh, the you know, things like decision paralysis, table talk would still mm. make that non-functional for us.
0: Okay, but is that, a, is that a player problem or is that the rules don't support it, right?
1: Um, hard, hard to say. My point about decision paralysis is you know mages still have a fairly comparable number of spells to choose between once they get uh, get above about first or second level. Kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, you know, things like movement in combat are certainly different. Uh, that's all. That's all a bit different. But you know, it, it's not. So it's not a goal I want badly enough to toss out what I have. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my only point is, you know, third, fourth, and fifth definitely do not do that because yeah. they they were made for small parties four right. or five players, six on the outside, right? Well,
1: and when you look at the the rest of the advice in this book, uh, the, the kind of florid description of cut and thrust combat that they're advising is quite hostile to uh, having very large tables.
0: Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I think by 1990, I think they realized that the hobby isn't so flush with players' and dms that you're going to have every table with 15 players right right and so they were already sort of re, you know contracting down to think about okay well what's the best number four or five players three players let's write about it like that because that seems to be the typical right yep but i mean i've been at i've been at tables with you know basic D D or with first edition that have had many people you know Maybe not 15 regularly, but, you know, 9, 10 regularly.
1: That's pretty wild to me. I have not done that. Uh, the largest game I've ever... Actually, I did have one session of second ed that I think had 10 players at the table. That was not a good decision on my part. I was running yeah. that. I, I did not have even a tenth of the experience and presence uh and presence of mind that I've needed to make that work. Yeah. Maybe I could do it now. Maybe I couldn't.
0: I'm not going to find out though. I mean, I, I really feel like it sort of speaks to the way that the game has changed in some in some aspects, right? And yeah. I, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm by no means am I saying that my anecdotal, you know, experience, of course, bleeds out to every. Player of first edition or of basic DD. I'm not saying that at all. And nor am I saying that obviously everybody played the right way. And that was with, you know, nine or 10 players. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that the game was built from a situation where they would have nine or 10, 12 players every time in those early yep. days. Cause it was war gamers sitting around at first. Right. And so you, so you could do that and the game was written to allow that to happen but it was a different game right when you play that's that's why the origin of the caller happened right cuz everybody can't be talking to the dm at once
1: right? right
0: and so you so but the game played very differently and if I was, if somebody said to me, Hey, I want you to run fifth edition with fifth edition rules. Cause we know fifth edition rules, but I want you to run like one of these mega parties, like 12 to 15 people. I could do it, but I would have to make some very explicit house rules
1: regarding
0: yeah. how this is working. And I wouldn't want to do it with new players. No way. It would have to be people that know their characters and know their PCs and know their abilities and, and you know, how everything
1: works. Uh, also, if you had, the, had consent from the players to just run the basic 5e rules, the, there's just the four classes and only the simplest subclasses each, mm-hmm. um, that could be pretty workable because there's so many less um, things to resolve.
0: Right. There's,
1: there's a lot less bonus action economy going on Mm -hmm. There's like, it's a, it's a very stripped down game. It's leaving out a lot of the stuff that people love. I I understand all the reasons this would be unpopular. Right. Right. But you could really keep things clicking pretty darn quick. If you, if you did that, I think.
0: Yeah. This is also reminding me very much of um, a game like dungeon crawl classics, where you, Mm -hmm. you can run a funnel and everybody takes three, makes three characters and they're not even first-level characters. They're zero-level funnel characters, and everybody has three. So if you've got five players, you've got 15 PCs. But the understanding is probably... Everybody except one of your PCs. Out of your three or four PCs, only one of them is going to survive. That's how right. squishy they are, right? And that's the whole experience as you go through the funnel, and there starts out with so many of you, and probably only a couple, two or three of you are going to survive. And that's kind of how it is. Imagine that we're with 15 people, we're all with one PC. Yeah. Right. And you just know that you're. it's like almost a competition. You know, you're going to get knocked out. If you get knocked out, you might be able to, you know, bring another character in or maybe not. Right. Like it depends on how you wanted to run that. But I could see that with 15 people. But again, now you're talking about a different game. You're talking about a different style of game.
1: I have one thing to say about that kind of game. May the odds be ever in your favor.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, so let's move on. I think we've, we've made our points yeah. there.
1: Um, uh, I don't have anything I need to say about DM burnout. Nah, um,
0: neither.
1: Other than uh, man, I've been doing this a long time, but I've never had it. So that's pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um,
1: but uh, I don't know. I I don't know why I get away with that, but I really like it. Um, yeah. So th- that brings us to the end of chapter four. Mm-hmm. Um. We, we can get through chapter five tonight, but that's pretty cool. Um, I want to continue because this, this chapter's is, uh, you know, one front and back page. Yeah. But also the art going into this is awesome. I love this picture.
0: Yeah. It's a great picture.
1: It's a, it's a really nice uh, image of the skeleton. I'm not sure why it's skeletal above. Well, it's skeletal on the arms and head and then very muscular and cut. In yeah. the in the like torso and legs, that's kind of weird.
0: Yeah, it is kind of odd.
1: Um, I feel like they just didn't want to draw bones. bony legs. Yeah. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not
1: sure. Because uh, like maybe those are supposed to be leather pants. It's just that they're very showing muscles.
0: Yeah, I mean I know. you know it's a Jeff Easley picture. You could just send him an email.
1: I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I I should get put on blast on Twitter for <laughs> harassing someone about 31 year old art.
0: <laughs> no, it's a great image. I love
1: it. It, it like it's really cool. Um yeah. just the 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 whole like lighting and color scheme is very strong here. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Um so chapter 5 is creating the campaign. Um and like the the, the super short version of this is have you considered crowdsourcing your setting creation? Have you considered yeah. buying a published campaign? Those are good ideas and you should try them. Yeah. Please come and, buy our campaigns. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, yeah. They begin with creating a campaign is a lot of work. And what they really mean is a setting. Yeah. Creating a campaign setting and a campaign within a setting that you're creating on your own is a lot of work. Don't do it just yourself. Invite your players here's how to involve them that's literally what this is um it's 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 okay it's okay advice yeah. well, uh,
1: it, the only thing that really makes me laugh about this is 2E being like you could buy settings right guys it's 2E that's all they're going to sell
0: yeah but they don't know that when they wrote this <laughs> right. right
1: that that makes it really wonderfully ironic uh, you know from from our vantage
0: yeah uh, yeah to, hilarious
1: a setting that's going to be uh, uh, sorry uh, additions can be drowning in settings right. but those settings are going to be just the foundation of like, 30 years of incredibly varied fandom
0: mm-hmm. right yeah so i mean it's a decent it's a decent it, I, i'm not sure it deserves a whole chapter but um you know whatever
1: uh I mean, in all fairness, this is going to wind up being a chapter of much more than one page in the Five E DMG.
0: Yeah, but I, I guess what I mean is, they might as well have just made the next chapter, Chapter Six, creating the world. They might have just, they might as well have oh, just put yeah. these together and made it all Chapter Five.
1: Uh, absolutely, absolutely.
0: It's just, it's kind of weird how they. In fact, there's no all the other chapters. I think. Now, maybe they don't, Uh, they, they, a lot of them get like a facing full color page at the beginning of the chapter, chapter six, doesn't because chapter five is so short.
1: Right. Well, and you know, they they get into, um, constrained amounts of lore that you need to teach. That's very important. Um, that's, that's advice. That's going to be perennial and ever necessary. Um. This is a great book.
0: This book so far, again, as I said at the top of the episode, you know, this really is the, if you really want to know how to do things and what you, what DMs are thinking about when they're planning things, this is it. This is the book that tells you. The DMG doesn't tell you that. Right. The D, the DMG. Well, I, you know, the 2E DMG does have a lot of advice type stuff in it. But yep. it's still very mechanistic, right? It's still well, very, Right. like here's here's how to apply the mechanics to this concept.
1: They have a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. Okay. In all fairness. Like Absolutely. every book of advice does. You've got to lay that foundation before you can start building on it. And right. That that's yeah. the life.
0: Absolutely. And I but I just, you know, in our D in our 5e DMG series that we did um, one of the things that we said was, you know, at the end of the day, this book doesn't tell you how to play, right. The game, it doesn't tell you how to run the game. It doesn't tell you how to be a DM. It just gives you tools to use in some ways, as if you already knew how. And I think one of us, it may have even been me made the point Well, no DMG does that. Right. So if you expect the dungeon master's guide to do that, you have, uh, maybe, um, uh, unrealistic expectation of what it's going to give you. Whereas right. this book that we're talking about right now actually fulfills a lot of that promise. Right. Yep. So that might be a good place to, uh, to, to wrap up this episode then.
1: I I agree. Uh, this has been an interesting pair of chapters. Um Again, just highlighting how uh, how timeless a lot of the situations are. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, the fact that this stuff, you know, we, we sort of joke uh, at various times about how it doesn't mention, se- you know, cell phones or smartphones or the internet or anything like that or streaming, you know, whatever. But other than that particular, you know, element that's missing from it, it hits so much of what we still talk about. Absolutely, You know, some of the terms have changed a little tiny bit, but for the most part, it still talks about everything we talk about already. I mean, and there's there's some element of occasionally when I was reading through um, this, this most recent chapter that we didn't discuss this time, but that we'll talk about next time, I thought to myself, that's like a, I, I know I've read the same advice in a blog article. Or uh-huh. on a on a forum post, you know, like I and it's that's not meant to be a denigration of what's in this book because this book did it first, right? It's the idea of even though this book exists and this book is out there, we're still talking about this all these years later.
1: Right. Absolutely. And part of that is just not enough people bought this book. <laughs> and part of it is, you know, uh when you hear good advice, sometimes it's still phrased in a way that you aren't ready to hear.
0: Right, right. Or you don't understand it yet. Like you haven't had that. Like I could see somebody reading this and going, oh, I've never had to deal with that. I'm going to skip this section or I don't, I'm just going to breeze through it and not really pay that much close attention to it.
1: Right. Well, if you don't need it yet, then okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, Brandis, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Well, um, I'm on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. You can also find me writing for Tribalogy.com, where I am in the middle, as of recording, uh, of reviewing uh, Fizbon's Treasury of Dragons. I sort of hope I'll be done by that done with that by the time this lands, but I guess <laughs> we'll find out. Um, you never and know, and <laughs> yeah, the world's a mystery to me. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I also write. My personal blog, com, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Sam, how about you?
0: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find me on uh my website, which is rpgmusings.com. I don't even know what it is now. Uh, I haven't updated it in a while because I'm super busy at work, but whatever, blah blah blah. Um, and uh you can also find me, of course, on the tome show. And that will end episode three of Edition Wars 2021. Awesome.